All right. Tonight we are uh, going to begin looking at uh, the first psalm in our new series that we have entitled Worship Through the Psalms. Worship Through the Psalms. Uh, if you weren't here last week uh, when I did an introduction to this series, uh, I want to kind of just bring us all up to speed with what we talked about uh, in what to expect as we go through this series. I want us all to understand what the purpose of studying through these psalms is. What What is God's uh, message to us through this book of psalms? If you remember, um, the title itself, psalms, uh, literally means praises. And so the intent of this book is to teach us, and the purpose of this book is worship. It's to teach us um, what God says worship is. What is true worship and how does God expect it to be carried out? So that's the purpose of this book and that's why we are headed uh, into this series because I believe that God has called each and every one of us to truly be worshipers of him. We talked last week about how many of us in the, in the church today um, can have just this very narrow-minded view of what worship is. Um, many of us just think that worship is just singing a couple of, of songs on a Sunday morning in church and then going about the rest of your life. But uh, as we talked a little bit last week and as we'll see, hopefully beginning with tonight's message, worship is so much more than that, folks. It is so much deeper than just a song. Now, singing is very important in worship. Um, the Lord commands us to sing to him, but I want us to understand, first of all, that, that worship uh, can be declared in so many more ways than just with our voice. And remember this, worship is declaring the worth of something. And, and so we we want to communicate to God how worthy he is, not just on a on a singing level, but in the depths of our heart. And so I believe uh, that is what God is going to teach us through uh, this series. And what my prayer is for us is that every psalm that we study out will show us a, a, a way that God desires and demands and deserves uh, to be worshipped. So without taking any more of our time, uh, let's go uh, to our first psalm. Uh, which will be Psalm chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Psalm chapter 1. I couldn't think of a, a better psalm to start with than this first one. This this first psalm just seems to encapsulate the whole purpose of the book. And uh, as you're turning there in your Bibles, I want us to think about a question to kind of wrap our minds around uh, where we're trying to go this evening. This is kind of a major philosophical question, and I don't want to get too bogged down in it. I just want to kind of get our minds uh, turning on this subject, if you will. But, but, but here's the question I want us to consider for just a moment. What is good? What is good? The actual term itself, what is it? How might we define good? What is the standard for what is considered uh, to be good. Many of us don't really think about the definition behind good. We just know what we think 
good is, right? Good is kind of this subjective thing in our minds. It's what we have perceived it uh, to be. And this is something that has been wrestled with for centuries. If you remember in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is approached by this rich young ruler. And you remember the question that that young man presented to Jesus. He asked him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of answering that question, what did Jesus do? Jesus turned a question around on him and he said, why do you call me good? You see, Jesus wanted to know what this young man's definition of good was. And if I gave us all enough time in here tonight, we we would all come up with what we think is a good definition uh, of this term, an appropriate definition, if you will. But it may differ even in the room of this size. How many of you know who C.S. Lewis is? He's one of my favorite authors, but he wrote a book, probably his most popular book, titled Mere Christianity. And he addresses this question uh, in the beginning of his book. And what he says, he talks about good being what the laws of nature point to. So, so for example, um, the law of nature defines what is good in our world. The outcome of these laws of nature are what we would consider the standard of right and wrong. It's a, a set order, if you will, he says. And so, for example, if you take the law of gravity, the outcome of gravity produces a good result. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that gravity does its job? Uh, we'd be floating up in the in the stratosphere right now if it didn't, right? And so, as far as nature goes, and the law of nature... Um, there is a set standard of a desired outcome. And, and it's because those laws of nature are immutable or unchanging. They're absolute. They cannot exist in any other form or way. But the problem with us is that in our human mind, the standard and definition of what is good is not always as clear cut. Let me explain even if you and I know what good is on an absolute level, we don't always display the effects of good in our actions. The outcome of our lives does not always produce the standard of good that we have in our mind. And so the point I want us to see here is that all of us have this ingrained sense of, of good, of morality, of what is right in our heart, even though our actions do not always line up with what we say to be true. And that inconsistency of in knowing good and being good can present a lot of problem for us, Man, especially as kids. Let me, let me explain. How many of you were told, many of us maybe on a daily basis, um, by your parents, your teachers, you better be good, right? We have had that preached to us from a very early age. Be good. You better behave, right? We, we live in a culture, especially in America, where we even bring Santa Claus into it, right? Uh, you, you remember that song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, right? We sing it every Christmas, I'm sure. But there's that line in that song that says, uh, you better be good for what? 
for goodness sake. The purpose of that song, if you think about it, is to manipulate us into good behavior. Why? So that we will receive a desired outcome. We'll get presents. We better be good or Santa Claus won't come to visit us, right? And you know, it's a manipulation tool, but there's not a parent alive that hasn't used that manipulation tool on your kids at some point. I, I know I have, right? And so here's here's what we have. We've grown up knowing that good behavior is something that we should strive for, something that is expected of us in society. But here's the question. Do we really know why good is the acceptable behavior? Do, do you understand the why? See, we have enough trouble with the what of good, but an even deeper question is, why should we be good? Now, I want to drive that question a little bit deeper for us in the context of Christianity or or the church tonight. Many of you uh, know my background. I've shared my testimony with you before, but, but I spent the first 13 years of my life in a, in a Baptist church that placed a lot of weight on behavior. Um, or maybe... Maybe a better way of putting it is, is that they, they put a lot of weight on other people's perception of your behavior. And, and because of that, this church had a lot of rules. It was very legalistic, but I didn't realize that at the, at the time. But they had a lot of rules on what was and wasn't considered good behavior for a Christian. Uh, of course, it was the same old, same old morality stuff, right? You know, don't drink, cuss, and chew, or go with girls that do. Um, but they took it deeper into, man, not even associating with people who had bad behavior. Um, they, they would quote scripture of, you know, come out from among them and be ye separate. Um, they even had this rule, you couldn't even go to restaurants that served alcohol because it was a reflection uh, that you endorse that kind of lifestyle and behavior and, and as i said earlier they, they would quote scripture to back up these rules but they were all taken out of context i know that today but you can imagine what that might do to a young man growing up in a place where you knew what was expected of you that you had better behave but you were never really told why you were never told the benefit of good behavior um other than uh, you were told that God said to be this way and if you weren't he would be angry with you um and you know what that was a very damaging time for me in my young life because it it put a, a perception of God in my mind that wasn't accurate you know it made God seem like he was just this mean old angry guy up there who couldn't wait for me to mess up so he could smite me, if you will, right? I lived in constant fear of disappointing God, but it also put this expectation on me that I, I could not, and really, for that matter, no one could live up to. It was this force uh, of being good and placing it upon your own abilities and trying to do that with not really understanding the motivation behind that good. You're just told to be good, but you didn't really know why. And that, that's a really important point to, to our time tonight. 
Um, I want us to understand uh, before we get into our text that, that our behavior is important to God, okay? But more important than our behavior is the motive behind our good behavior. And you know, if we miss this point, we're going to misunderstand so many good things uh, that God has for us as it pertains to, to good behavior. There is blessing in good behavior, as we'll see tonight. And we'll miss the, the point of that if we don't understand that it's not so much about how we go about living this life of morality and in, in good behavior, but it uh, has a lot to do about how God moves us in that direction and prompts us in that way. So as we go into our time tonight, remember that God, that God has this expectation of us uh, to be good. He sets the standard for what good is. But the reason for our goodness has very little to do with us and our abilities and a lot to do with him and what motivates us through him to be good. So here's what we're going to do tonight, a little outline for you real quick. Um, we're just going to go through this psalm. It's six verses. I want to break it down for us, um, explain, hopefully clearly, uh, what the psalmist is trying to convey in the text itself. And then I want us to see um, what the psalmist has to teach us about worship. And, and you know what, that may be a question that uh, is already kind of floating around in your mind. What does good behavior have to do with worship? Is good behavior worship? I pray that we will see the answer to that this evening. So uh, take your Bibles and look with me at Psalm 1. Uh, let me just read this psalm and we will go through it and break it down to see what the Lord wants us to see tonight. <clears throat> psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night verse three he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish a couple of things i want us to understand about this psalm before we get into the actual context of it is is this song psalm rather is considered a declaration psalm it is a song that is sung to the Lord declaring some sort of truth about him. Okay? And this is an important point for us to understand uh, about worship. A little side point real quick. True worship and song conveys only two things. Okay? True worship songs either lead us to sing directly to God or to sing about some spiritual truth to God. Does that make sense? Um, there are a lot of Christian songs out there that are very entertaining, that have a good message, but they're not worship. All right. True worship is singing to God, declaring his goodness, his greatness, his glory, his worth. 
or it's singing about those things to him. Okay, and so this is a declaration psalm. And so the question is, what is this psalm declaring? Very simple, uh, very straightforward point. Here, here's what he's declaring. In this world, in this life, there are two types of people. And among those two types of people, there are two paths that they can take in this life. And only two paths. The psalm begins, if you will, if you'll look at verse 1, with a condition. This first word in the psalm is blessed. And so that that is something that is is given to us if something else is attained. So the condition in the Bible is is it tells us here's what you can achieve if you do this. And so uh, I want us to talk a little bit about what it means to be blessed. I think you're going to like the biblical definition of this. The the word in the Hebrew here is asher, uh, and it literally means happy. Think about that tonight. The, the psalmist begins this psalm by talking about the happiness of a person. Happy is the man, he begins, right? Now that should get our attention tonight. How many of you want to be happy? And I, I know I do. Right? We're going to talk a little bit later on about why God wants us to be happy. But everybody desires happiness in their life. Now granted, yes, we know it is not the most important characteristic or attribute or emotion even uh, of our life but it is an important one and this psalm begins with this condition of happiness and with every condition in the bible the passage tells us how to fulfill that condition and the writer tells us happy is the man who walks not and so this is a very important point for us here to see the psalm begins by teaching us if we want to be happy in this life there are first some things we must avoid. There are some things that we've got to stay away from. He gives us three of them really quickly. Let me go through them. The first one is walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The second one is stands in the way of sinners. And the third is sits in the seat of scoffers. And so what we see already is that happiness is found in staying away from certain behaviors now many of us have been taught that in our life right don't do this don't do that but i want us to look at exactly what's being said here i want you to notice there's a progression in this verse is it not from walking to standing to sitting and this is so important for us to understand to get happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked stands in the way of the sitter or sits in the seat of scoffers. The question that I have is why would the psalmist go through that kind of detail of what we are to avoid? He could have just said, happy is the man who stays away from sin, right? But that wouldn't be a sufficient answer. You see, that's kind of what I was taught growing up is stay away from this. But I, I wasn't really even sure what this was or why I needed to stay away from it or why it was that bad. And so the psalmist breaks it down for us very specifically. We're going to see why that is in just a second. So let's look at the first one. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This verb walk refers to an ongoing journey, specifically a journey that someone else has already walked. And so it's this picture of following someone down a certain road. Okay. And so what path is that that he's talking about? He says it's the counsel 
of the wicked. Two things I want to point out to us in this passage. The first word counsel means advice. So it deals with our thinking. Okay, I want you to get that in your mind. Walking in the counsel of the wicked deals with our thoughts. It implies taking someone's thought process or philosophy of things to heart and then following that same thought process. Okay, and so the psalmist is telling us um, whose thought processes or advice should we we should stay away from, and it's the wicked. Now this this phrase, the wicked here, specifically refers to to criminals, those who intentionally set out to do wrong. So the, the writer's saying, listen, happy is the man who does not follow the path of a criminal's mindset. Now what kind of mindset would a criminal have? You know, if you were to to give come up to a criminal and ask him to give you advice on being a criminal, what are some things he might say? He may say some things like this, you know, do whatever you got to do to get what you want. Or, you know, you break whatever law you want to break to accomplish what you're after, right? It would be very self-centered advice, right? It would put your desires ahead of everybody else's. And so the writer says that those who are happy in this life are those who stay away from that type of mindset. We don't even think about those things. But the progression goes on. He goes on to say, nor stands in the way of sinners. This word stands, which is amad in the Hebrew, means to abide or remain in something. It's to establish yourself in something. And so it's this context of moving from thinking uh, to behaving. Okay, So there's this transition from the mind to the actions, all right? So happy is the man who who does not think about taking the advice of a criminal, nor establishes himself in the behavior of sinners. That's the second progression. So not only do we stay away from the thoughts of it, but we certainly stay away from the behavior of the, the wicked and sinners. But then there's one more, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, this is the one that we we think is the easiest to to spot and to stay away from. But this progression now goes from thinking to behaving to now belonging. The term sit means to dwell among something. It's like this. If if someone comes to your house and they're a vacuum cleaner salesman, most of the time they don't even get out of the doorway, right? Or the foyer. Maybe they stand uh, at the door, uh, the front door, but you don't invite them in, right? But someone that you uh, are familiar with or acquainted with that comes for a visit, you invite them to come in and they sit down. They're going to be there a while. And so this here is a picture of something becoming your identity. And so the writer tells us um, that the seat of scoffers, meaning um, those who mock what is good, um, those who sit in that seat have now made sin and wickedness part of their identity. So don't you see tonight already why this is so beneficial for us to understand, why it's necessary for the psalmist to say more to us than happy's the man who doesn't sin. Because there is so much to sin that can corrupt our heart way before we ever get to the act of it. 
ourselves. And the psalmist knows that sin follows this progression from thinking to doing to being. And we must stay away from all three of these things if we intend to be happy. The Apostle James gave us this same progression. Listen to what he says in verses 14 and 15 in James 1. Each person uh, is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. You see the progression? And then finally, when sin, when it is fully full grown, brings forth death. Folks, oh, the sins that I could have avoided had I understood these things as a child. Man, had it been explained to me that you don't just avoid these certain behaviors, but here is why. Sin doesn't just start with the act itself. It starts in the mind. I could have understood why it was wise to go in the other direction, right? How I wish that I had been taught this as a child. This next part of the psalm, though, is equally important. You see, the key to a happy life is not just in simply avoiding bad behavior, as verse 1 tells us, or even simply trying to avoid bad thoughts even. There must be a filling of our lives with something else. And so we can't just drive out all of these bad behaviors. We must also fill our hearts with something, which is where verse 2 comes in. Look at verse 2. It starts with a contrasting uh, statement, but which brings the pursuit of the happy man. Follow along with this, what he says. But his delight, the, the happy man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So happiness, the psalmist is telling us, isn't just found in avoiding the progression of wickedness and sin, but in the pursuit of, of something very specific. And the, the psalmist tells us, we pursue the law of the Lord. Now let me explain this real quick. Um, how many of you would agree that the law of the Lord is good? Yeah. Some of us do, some of us don't. Some of us, I've talked to many Christians who today who say, you know what, I'm so glad that I'm not under the law anymore. You know, you know what I say to them? Well, uh, that's not, completely true yes the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled the temple laws of worship have been fulfilled remember jesus said i came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it and so we understand um, that the law is still um, important but it's been fulfilled by jesus but there's this other side of the law uh, that we're still under and it's the moral law of god the ten commandments right I mean, how many of you are thankful that murder is still wrong? I am. I mean, how many of you are glad that adultery, for the most part, is still frowned upon in circles of our society? Right? That moral law still matters, and we are still under that law. And so when a believer in God in the Old Testament looked at the law of God, they didn't see just a bunch of, of, of rules and the way kind of some of us may see it today they didn't see the law of god as a burden 
They actually looked at it as a blessing. Listen to how God um, demanded that they see the law. Deuteronomy chapter 30. You don't have to turn there. But listen to what it says. Deuteronomy 30, 15, 16, and 19. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. Listen, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Listen to this. Therefore, choose life. You get that? Choose life that you and your offspring may live. How was the law, what was the law rather equated to in this passage? Life. It wasn't equated to just a bunch of rules that you follow. The commandments of God were a means to blessing and life for those who knew them and obeyed them. And so here in Psalm chapter one, when the psalmist looks about, talks about rather the law of the Lord um, it's referring to the commands of God that would enrich and bless someone who knew them and obeyed them. The law was good, which leads me to, to the practice of a happy man, the happy person here in this psalm, the one who is concerned with the law of the Lord. There are two things that take place here that I want to talk about. It says, happy is the man whose delight is in the law. You get that? His delight is in the law. And the second thing is they meditate on it day and night. Folks, this is the key part to the whole psalm tonight. If you don't get any other part, you've got to understand verse 2 and what it's trying to communicate to us. Let me ask you, what does it mean to delight in something? That's a beautiful word, isn't it? It's a, it's a beautiful expression. It, it's not just an infatuation. It's it's truly an immersion into something. Um, the literal definition of delight means to take pleasure in something, to find your joy in that thing. Oh, folks, this is so key in our culture today. Every one of us are looking for something to fill this joy void in our life we desire we crave something that we can delight in and so this thing that he's talking about is something that a, a person's whole being gets immersed into and so what is it he says we delight in the law in the life that god gives us from his very word and i want you to see this beautiful picture that this paints for us. This is where the beauty of the word comes into play. You know, there are many things that we read in our life. Isn't there are many things that we have to read? Many of you deal with contracts, right? Tim, I know you uh, deal with them in real estate, you know. And contracts are necessary, aren't they? You read them because they contain a lot of information that you need to know. But I don't know anybody who's signing up to just read contracts 
for fun, right? doesn't really stir anything up in us. But then there's things that we read that, that entertain us, right? Maybe a comic strip or a novel, right? We enjoy them. But man, we don't really get drawn into them that much. They they don't consume us. But folks, then there is this thing. This word that we read and it absolutely draws us in. It completely consumes our mind. It, it, it gets our emotions uh, intertwined with the words that it's saying. This word convinces us of things that hadn't we have previously maybe not considered it calls us to change our perceptions about things and even our actions this word here that we have from god stirs our affections and it impacts us on a on a soul level you know what i mean deeper than our mind deeper than our actions uh, this word from god pierces our heart it captures our very heart and you know what folks when something has your heart you delight in that thing spouses i want you to think about your loved one you delight in them it's because they have all of you Folks, when we delight in the Lord, in the law of the Lord, it's because it's got all of us. Folks, this is the key to our message tonight. Don't miss it. When you delight in something, you want it, you love it, you crave it. And a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who craves the word of God, like verse 2 is saying here, someone who doesn't just read it, but they do what Deuteronomy 30 says. They make it their life. They conform their thoughts and their behavior to what it says. The word forms them. And they take pleasure in what it does in their life. The power that it has. And notice this. The psalmist puts delight before meditate. And it's only because it's because only when we delight in the word of God are we able to. To meditate on it. We don't remember things we don't love. We don't remember things that aren't important to us. But the psalmist says that when we delight in the Lord. We, it becomes our meditation. It stays in our mind. We recite it out loud. We do it day and night. Which refers to all times. Not just in church. But every day. And folks the blessed person. The truly happy person is the one who sees the word of God for what it truly is, life, happiness, and the way that God himself speaks to us. Folks, do you see the word that way tonight? Do you look at God's word and embrace it? Do you love it? Do you take time to read it, to meditate on it? But here's the most important question. Do you live it out? Tonight, do you allow your life to be shaped by what it says? So what we have here in these first two verses is this contrast. There are the wicked who go about life in the way verse 1 describes. And then we have the righteous man, as he's described in verse 5, who finds his delight in something completely different who spends his time, his energy, his efforts on something 
that truly matters. So then what we see in verses 3 and 4 is then a, this comparative illustration of, of the outcome of these types of people, if you will. Look at what verse 3 says. This, this righteous man, the blessed man, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The word of God says, in all he does, he prospers. I love this. So we have the righteous, so the happy man, and he's compared to a tree by streams of water. And it's interesting to note that, that this planting here is not from a seedling, but it's actually a transplant. So it's this picture of a tree that's taken from a dry place and placed beside a stream of water. And the result of being placed by that stream of water is that it bears fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Let me connect the dots for us here with that. I love this. Look at this. The righteous man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And when he does that, when he's immersed in it, he is like that tree that begins to be filled with this life-giving water. They're connected to the life source if you will, the word of God goes from being this intellectual practice to a way of life for this person. It affects their attitude, their decisions, their affections. It changes their life and there becomes a thirst for the word of God. It's just like that tree who maybe was in a desert place suffering, trying to survive. But God takes that tree and he puts it right in the source of its life source and immerses it in life. And when when that happens, two things happen. Look at it. It says it yields its fruit in season. You know what that is? That's a fulfillment of its purpose. A tree can only be what it's called to be when it's where it's supposed to be. You got me? An apple tree can't produce apples if it doesn't have everything it needs to produce apples. But when it has everything it needs, when it has the water, when it's soaking in that stream of life, it's able to be what it's called to be. The second thing is, it says it doesn't lose its leaves. It's healthy. It's got what it needs. And so only when a tree is put in an environment where it's receiving what it needs, then it can fulfill its purpose and remain healthy. And you know what health and purpose bring about in a man, in a woman? Happiness. Happiness. And folks, that's what the Word of God does in us. As we are immersed in the beauty and the power of the Word, we begin to grow and become spiritually healthy people who are changed And as we're changed from the inside out by our delight and our love for God and his word and meditating on it and applying it, then we begin to see what our purpose is in this world. And when we begin to to live out that purpose, we have fulfillment, we have joy, and we become happy people. Folks, doesn't your heart crave that tonight? Does your heart not yearn for purpose for significance, knowing that you are exactly where God wants you to be and that he is right there with you and he is filling you up like that stream of water. Folks, I know that's what my heart craves. 
That's what my prayer is for my life, is that, God, I will be right where you want me to be. And you know what I find? I'm right where I need to be when I'm delighting in him. He will move me where he wants me to be. He will transplant us to the best place for us. Our job is to delight in him. And so the other side of this is uh, the outcome of the wicked. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. They're, they're not like the righteous. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. And this is very simple, explanatory. Chaff is the useless part of wheat. It's dried up. It has no life in it. On the threshing floors um, in Israel, they would usually try to set them up um, on a hill so that as they were beating out the wheat, the chaff would blow away, right? Or you would burn it. It had no use. The way of the wicked, those pursuits of the wicked, leave them empty, pointless, without a purpose, and they are dry. But there's a deeper danger in the way of the wicked, and it's not just that they're dried up. There's an eternal issue. Look at verses 5 and 6. We see the fate of these two people. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I'm almost done here. Let me quickly go through these two verses. There are two very sad realities for the wicked in these verses. And folks, this ought to get our attention tonight for Christians. The first one refers to the collapse of the standing of the wicked. It says, the lives of the wicked produce weak defenses when they will stand before the judgment of their lives and their action. One day God will call each and every one of us to stand before his throne of judgment and to give an account for our lives. Do you understand that? We will have to tell God why we chose to live the way we live. That's very sobering, is it not? And it says the wicked here, as they stand before God, they have no defense but themselves. And in essence, what they're doing is they are declaring their own guilt as God brings their indictments, these indictments before them, and they will not be able to stand against those accusations. Revelation chapter 6, 15 and 16 gives us a picture of what that day will look like. It says the kings of the earth will run in fear. They will hide and they will pray for the rocks to fall on them because Here's what they say. Who can stand against that great day of wrath? Folks, that ought to make us shake. It ought to drive us to our knees for those people who are headed that direction. And then cause us to rise to our feet and go tell them that the only way that they will stand in that judgment is not by being good. Or avoiding bad. Their eternal destination and their eternal standing before God depends solely on who they find their righteousness in. Those of us who belong to Jesus, we know that we found our righteousness in Him. Not in our good behavior. Thank God. He makes us good. But just as sad as their 
not being able to stand in the judgment is the fact that they will not receive the reward of the righteous. What is the reward? It says the sinners will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. This means that there will be a day when all the redeemed will stand together with one heart and we will behold that which we have lived our lives for, whose name is Jesus. And we will see him face to face. And we will bow and kiss his feet. And we will do it together. And folks, there's something very encouraging about looking to your right and to your left and seeing the people who have who have dragged their way into heaven, beat up and bloodied and scarred from a life of righteousness on this earth, but looking at each other and saying, we made it. We made it. And we'll be able to stand in heaven with Jesus as our king before us and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Folks, our heart craves that approval tonight. And the wicked will miss it. They'll miss it. Oh God. May our hearts be broken for those who are walking this way. And so there's this reward that we receive. And, and the reward is, is comes full circle in this psalm. It goes back to verse 1. There will be blessing. There will be joy. There will be happiness. Not just temporal in this life, but forevermore. Psalm 1611. We're going to get to that psalm in a few weeks. But I love that psalm. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the reward of the righteous. And so, folks, as we close, what we see here in this psalm is that there's a happiness on this side of eternity for us. But it's found only in our delighting and meditating and obeying God's word, which is a complete immersion in the things of God, his ways, his heart, his commands. And we take that word and we let it stir our souls. We let it change our behavior when we do that, we find this contentment and joy and happiness that cannot be found any other way. Verse 6 tells us the power behind it. He says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Why do you think the Lord knows the way of the righteous? It's because it's his way. You see, this verse is not saying God comes alongside of us on our journey. The righteous walk the journey of the Lord. And that's why there's fulfillment and joy. Because we are... And so, Lord, Father, I pray that you would show us that tonight. I want to move into two applications real quick. So let me give us a, a couple of applications and we'll be done. I told us in the beginning of our time tonight that the purpose of the Psalms is worship, right? And so the question is, what does right living and delighting in the word and in God and meditating and obeying have to do with worship? Does this teach us anything about worship? And I would submit to you, oh, absolutely it does. I think it teaches us this aspect of worship that many of us don't consider to be worship. But remember what I said, worship is not just a song. It's a way of life, Right. And so here, let me give you this first application. This psalm is a declaration, right? It's a declaration of, of what happens, the benefits of those 
who are righteous, who delight in the Lord, who meditate on his word, right? Who, who take the word of God and allow it to shape them, to change them, to bring them under its authority, right? When our, their lives begin to reflect God's standards instead of man's wicked standards, then something begins to happen. When we begin to live that way, it means that we embrace God's way of living. And it means we value that way more than any other way of life. We're saying to God, I believe that the way you've called me to live what you've called me to take pleasure in is so much better than what I could call myself and choose for myself. And folks, by doing that, what we're saying to God is, God, your way is better than mine. And that's called ascribing worth to God. And you know what that is? It's worship. Worship is ascribing value and worth to God by choosing his way of life over our own. And folks, this is the kind of worship that, that Paul was speaking of in Romans chapter 12. He says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a day-to-day -day sacrifice, that a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable. The Word of God says that we are to be holy as who is holy? As God is holy. And so the only way for us to offer a sacrifice like that is to be God's people, to follow God's plan to do it God's way. So Paul says, as we offer our bodies in that manner, which is a lifestyle of laying down our way and taking up his, as our whole life is submitted to that, Paul says that is a reasonable or acceptable act of worship. So the way we live, folks, is worship. Tonight, my question is this. Will you commit to worship God with more than just your voice on Sunday mornings? Will you let your worship be deeper than your words? Will you commit to worship him by living your life according to his standard found in his word? Will you seek to examine your life on a daily basis, your thoughts, even your motives, and ask God to help you bring all of those under submission of his word? Will you choose to worship him that way? And then finally, Paul teaches us that when we live this lifestyle of delighting in him, it produces in us a happiness and a joy. And that joy and happiness should not be internal. It should be evidential. It should be demonstrative. And so as we allow the word to change us, it ought to begin to change our actions. And then we ought to be able to live happy joyful lives and when we do that folks you know what that is it's contagious how many of you would agree that happy people are more pleasing to be around i am i mean who wants to hear uh i want you to know god loves you i'm trying right I and mean, that's not contagious but joyful people attract others to themselves and so if the promise of a righteous life submitted to the delight of god and his word is, is a blessing and happiness then the way we live our lives will overflow with praise and worship we will sing to him 
He will put a song in our heart to sing to him in our happiness. But even deeper than that, our lives will be put on display for everyone we come in contact with. And they'll see our joy and they will want what we have. Let me ask you tonight, man. Do people want what you have? A lot of that is determined upon what you're showing them. Joy, evidential joy, is worship. Jesus told us to let our light shine before men. What do you think that is? What is that light? It's Him emanating through us in joy, in good works. And they will glorify their Father in heaven. I love what Paul says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, he says that we are the aroma of Christ. You smell like Jesus tonight? When people look at you, can they see a difference in your countenance because of who you belong to? So here's what I want to challenge us with and we'll be done. I'm really going to have to work at this myself. But here's what I want you to work on. In your encounters with others this week, especially with with non-believers, I want you to try to make an intentional effort to truly radiate the joy and happiness that you claim to have in your life. A life that's captivated by Jesus. You know, so many times we live a life that is circumstantial, right? We, we live a, a life that our emotions are reflected in how good we feel. And so here's what I want you to try to do. You know, when that waitress is slow with the refill, I want you to thank her for her service instead of punishing her with a bad tip. When you're standing in line at the post office or the grocery store, initiate a conversation about the beauty that you see all around you. I think that's a beautiful way to express your joy. Folks, it's it's spring. Things are coming to life. You know how good God is? God gave us one of our best holidays as Christians this time of year. It's Easter. And what do we celebrate at Easter? We celebrate at Easter the fact the tomb is empty. That God brought Jesus back to life. And so every time you see a flower budding or blooming out there, that's a picture of life. Share it with somebody. Make them want to know why you have this beautiful hope in you. Parents, when your kids are driving you up the wall this week, hug them. Maybe to beat them first, I don't know, but hug them. Tell them how thankful you are to be their parent. Thank God for them in front of them. Folks, let our delight in God manifest itself to others. You know what I believe? We're amazed at the conversations that start and the opportunities that we'll be given to give a hope that's in us when we do that. You know what? When the gospel is proclaimed, when joy radiates from our heart and people want to know why, we worship in that way. So folks, I pray that this psalm has taught us that worship is so much bigger than a couple of songs on Sunday. Um, Folks, I pray that we will desire to worship him that way. Let's pray.